This is Essential. 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 This is Essential Audio. Hello and welcome to the Money Pot. I'm Sanjeev Kalita, editor in chief at Money 2020, and I'm joined by Rachel Morrissey, one of our producers. How's it going, Rachel? I'm doing okay, Sanj. I did start the week with a trip to the dentist to get a crown fitted, which isn't really the way I'd like to start most weeks. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, I, I agree. Is, is everything okay though? Oh yeah, everything's fine. It was all sorted pretty quickly, and they did a good job. I think the longer pain I experienced came afterwards when it came to paying for it. So not necessarily the amount, but the fact that my dentist health insurance was maxed out. So the practice sent me a notification telling me I need to pay it, but in their system they had the wrong address. So I had no real knowledge that I owed them anything. Wow, bad data in the system. I wish I were surprised. But but that sounds really tough, and something which could very quickly get you in hot water. Well, fortunately, I noticed a new credit charge opened in my name through my Credit Karma app, and when I investigated, I saw it was from the dentist surgery, and it was only when I rang them that I realized one, I wasn't aware that I owed them what I owed them, and two, they had the wrong address for me. So we got it all straightened out. I'm able to pay for the work I had done. But it made me think about just how messy our payment services infrastructure is, and especially when it comes to services tied to HR and employee benefits, like my health insurance. Oh yeah, I totally agree with you. I don't think it's true, but sometimes it seems like all those employee benefit systems and expense systems have been intentionally made as complicated as possible in order to put employees off from ever using them. Well, I don't know if there's quite that level of malicious intent. However, when you need to remember is that HR systems have been selected by the company, by either the HR or the finance department. So, what they are thinking about when selecting what service the company will use is how useful it is to them on the back end, as the employer, and not necessarily how good the UX is for the employees. And especially not if different departments are using different services, which don't necessarily play nice with one another. Exactly. I mean, it really feels like someone should have come up with a solution to this, but that is a complex thing to revamp. I mean, entire employee finance and benefit system, which interacts with not just the employees' banks, but also with countless institutions from hospitals and stockbrokers. Well, actually, I was introduced to this guy Kurt Lin, and he's come up with a great solution. It doesn't involve removing or replacing everything that already exists, but rather building on top of them. Uh, I'm Kurt Lin, co-founder and CEO of Pinwheel. Lin is a serial entrepreneur who started several companies. One that he's developed was sold to Volvo, which he joined post-acquisition. While he was there, he signed up for their HSA or health savings account, and he found it really frustrating to use. So let me guess: being the entrepreneur he is, when he sees a problem, he wants to find a way to solve it. You've got it. So when Kurt eventually moved on from Volvo, he started another company, creating an app to help automate the HSA process and help people easily access it whenever they needed. Well, that sounds great. I mean, it would solve one issue, but what about everything else we were just talking about? I mean, the employee share plans, expensing items, four hundred one k adjustments. Well, that's where that entrepreneurial magic happens. Kurt knew that a lot of others were creating systems to help fix issues around helping employees take better advantage of their benefits. He also saw that the infrastructure or API layer that would allow app integration into a complete payroll system was missing. 
So he went to solve that problem. And that is how his company, Pinwheel, was born. Well, that sounds like a real eureka moment. I really think it was. But this could have exponential opportunities for employees beyond their company benefits. It also makes using their own data much easier and much safer. Pinwheel provides an API that allows any consumer to connect their payroll account to any app. And by payroll account, I mean uh, like an ADP account, a Gusto account, a Paychex account, etc. And once we have that connectivity established, we can do a number of things, but there's kind of two big buckets. One is allow that consumer to share their data, everything from their identity to their employment to their income even down to the granular level of pay stubs and their time in attendance, we can access there and share with the consumer's uh, consent. And then on the other side, we can also change inputs, more specifically edit direct deposit settings in that uh, consumer's payroll account. Uh, Okay, I see. So by enabling the user to have much more control over selecting what information is shared to, say, landlords or future employers or loan applications, they're able to know that what they're sharing is correct, accurate, and only what is truly needed. You've got it. Right now, it feels like you've got to print out pages and pages of sensitive information just to show someone that you have regular income. Not even thinking about the cost that's having on trees to make the paper it's printed on. The state of the market before Pinwheel arrived uh, was one that was highly manual and very paper-based, right? Mm -hmm. So whenever you apply, and frankly, this is still the problem now, um, but when you apply for like a mortgage or uh, an apartment rental um, or any sort of financial product, you have to prove three things at, at a bare minimum, that you are who you say you are, you make what you say you make, and you work where you say you work. Uh, and to do that, you really have to, you know, get your paper pay stubs, your W-2s, all these documents uh, from all these different disparate sources, and then share them with uh, whoever, you know, needs it. And that's not only a really high friction process, but also uh, one that's really ripe for fraud, right? And also expensive because you have to have a human uh, manually verifying all this information, right? And the same goes for trying to change a direct deposit. You have to, you know, basically um, submit a paper form to your HR team for them to then process, right? With Pinwheel, you can kind of take all of that friction out of the equation, have that consumer simply connect their payroll account um, to whatever service that they're trying to use, um, and be able to instantly share identity, income, employment information, uh, along with uh, you know changing, again, things like direct deposits uh, with just a few clicks. So I can see how this really benefits the people who are already actively using the financial services and benefit systems. But I know that's actually a pretty small percentage of the population. I I mean, I remember reading that about 80% of households live paycheck to paycheck. That's a pretty big market segment to be missing out on. Well, it would be if Pinwheel were ignoring them. But actually, a big part of their offering is the ability to enable the 80% to use more of their benefits by making their data more usable. In addition to the HSA example, lenders could use the Pinwheel API to get more current and accurate payroll information to make better risk management decisions or even develop new products tied to access to payroll information. That sounds powerful. I mean, I'm consistently amazed at how much data can be an enabler. And I'm also consistently amazed at how much existing systems fall short. I mean, I think part of the problem is the law of large numbers and the reality of small numbers. Thinking about my dental care error, let's say the dental reporting system I'm on has a 1% error rate. So in their mind, the error rate is tiny. But for me, it's a 100% error rate, which is huge. 
If I could help solve this problem easily by enabling them to pull my real address from a source they trust, it would be a huge time saver. It certainly would be. Working on my startup, Guppy, I hear so many horror stories about the bad data and how it impacts people's lives. It really does. I mean, since I spent so many years in public policy, I definitely have a raw nerve for these types of problems. Sometimes you can solve problems with policy. I mean, sometimes through technology and sometimes through market action. You're right. There are so many different ways to solve a problem. I think that Pinwheel's API solution applies technology, but also pushes greater participant engagement. One thing Kurt was very clear about was how giving employees and consumers more control over their money was key to the company's mission. We have a very firm stance on this. And I think history has shown that when you are on the side of consumer empowerment, you will always be on the right side of history. And we really do believe that. And it also is core to our mission uh, as a company. I applaud that mission. But why is this different than the many, many other financial management apps, which tells you where your money is going? I mean, what your investments are and how much is coming into your account each month. I mean, I find mine through Credit Karma, right? That was how I learned about that mistake. It it was. But uh, those examples you're talking about, those are consumer facing, right? But this was very intentionally a B2B product because it scales well, but also connecting to payroll data works because payroll information underpins almost all of our financial products. So allowing a flow of data directly from that information to different accounts, apps, and institutions changes a lot. They really are the the lifeblood of the financial world, right? Without that information, you really can't build reliable financial products. Um, I think what we're really doing is being able to say, hey, through our point of connectivity, here's a way to access all that information seamlessly in a programmatic way without the uh, the kind of specter of fraud that is so persistent now. And because we have those pipelines built, the real exciting things is being able to take all that data and actually now start to add a imputed or translation layer on top to really take that data to the next level, right? And so what does that actually mean? It's everything from being able to say, hey, um, we know, uh, given the data that we've collected, that a, a nurse or a teacher who has been spent rather the past five or six years at the same job, um, even though on paper they have a 550 FICO, actually performs like a 750. So the data is a better reflection of their credit worthiness. This would also help with issues that PayBaby was fixing around KYC when we spoke to them back in April. Wow, Rach, we really cover a lot of stuff on this show. <laughs> oh, we try. But <laughs> really, I mean, it's amazing how everything becomes connected, like a giant web. I love this blood metaphor Kurt mentioned. Well, I hope our listeners aren't too squeamish because he went into more detail on it. There are a lot of parts of the body that really haven't had, you know, the full supply of blood that they can get. And so they've been, you know, getting these drips here and there and then have built a product or a system around the limited amounts of data, aka the limited amounts of blood that they can get. And so by being able to open up that pipeline and give them all of it, now they can really kind of unlock the potential of the business and uh, perform much better and and expand, et cetera. So this is all part of embedded and open finance, which really requires APIs. And we've been discussing the fluidity and the immediacy that APIs provide, but designing them is quite complicated. Particularly when we're trying to have data controlled by the consumer, 
but also flows more immediately into the right hands. So I asked him what he thought were the basics of good API design. There are a number of things that make uh, great APIs. I think the first and foremost is really understanding who your user is and their needs. And it's not that different from, you know, just building a product in general, right? I think, first of all, thinking really carefully through the developer experience and providing complete, accurate, and easy to digest documentation. And the other key piece of it is also outlining the use cases to actually solve problems for the user versus just kind of furnishing something and um, letting uh, the consuming uh, developer have to figure stuff out on their own, right? You really want to make that experience as easy as possible for them. So that is the basic outline for all APIs. But he went a step further outlining three areas to focus on to make it truly adaptable. I think a great API has great error handling. So having the right status codes and really having human readable messages to help troubleshoot. Uh, Also being gentle with newbies and first-time users while also empowering experienced ones to get the most out of it, right? And so that really means being predictable and consistent, as well as really uh, easily interoperable uh, with other code. And then I think the final thing around building a great API product is really being uh, deliberate that you are establishing a contract, right? And so when you publish an API, you're declaring this explicit contract with your clients and the consumers of the API. And that means uh, really being crisp, clean, and uh, making sure that you are supporting them uh, at all times, including having backwards compatibility. I love these design points. It's great first principles design thinking because one of the benefits of the API is that it actually creates greater transparency and fixes poor thinking. I mean, like Kurt's example about better understanding the creditworthiness of people like nurses or teachers who might live paycheck to paycheck, but are good with their money and smart financial risks. I once interviewed Rachel Schneider, who wrote the book, The Financial Diaries, about how American families coped with living paycheck to paycheck. And she found that people are very creative and that the financial system didn't account for the way that they managed. Uh, this type of information I mean, makes it easier to account for that. So why hasn't this been done before? Until now, we haven't had the technology in place to make this real. It wasn't until 2015 that most HR systems had been updated from paper to the cloud. Also, 85% of Americans are now getting their paychecks through direct deposit. This makes the API tech viable for widespread adoption. So this is the moment. And this could change the nature of data used for most retail financial products. Open finance solutions solve a major pain point for lenders. Data from the big three credit bureaus is costly and often outdated. They all update their data at different cycles. And this data is inconsistent too. How many times have you logged on to your bank or credit card account and they ask you for updated salary information? Do you think they'd be asking you if they felt like they knew? I don't think so. Kurt talked about this too. I've heard from, at this point, hundreds of lenders who have told me time and time again that the data they get from Equifax or one of these other providers is just incomplete, it's stale, it's expensive, and I I wish I just had a better source of information around someone's income and employment that I could reliably use to verify as well as underwrite. And so, you know, we'll work with a number of lenders to make sure that we can provide them with that, you know, truly better quality, lower cost, 
reduced risk of fraud and better yet also um, maintain a reoccurring connection to the data so you can pull it not just once, but uh, on a regular basis. Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, for the bureaus, this type of data is a bit secondary, whereas for Pinwheel and the consumer is as primary as you can get. Like I said earlier, what might be a small number for you is a big number for me. Spot on, Rachel. But one more point in addition to making the data better is that an API like Pinwheels enables new, quote, data conversations to happen, meaning that you're able to connect data in ways that was impossible before. And these data connections enable products that were also impossible before. Well, another example is to be able to say, hey, you know, as a uh, lender, one of your goals, if not your main goal, is to reduce risk, right? And if you're able to, you know, directly access a customer's paycheck, of course, with their explicit consent, um, and be able to be first money out, right? Uh, a huge win-win occurs where that uh, lender can reduce their risk. And at the same time, that borrower can unlock a much lower interest rate by opting into this format. This type of win-win empowers everyone. I mean, it allows institutions to serve their customers better because they have a better insight into their financial lives and can be more proactive in becoming service-centered instead of product-centered. And it definitely helps the customers that can share this data because their financial institution can offer more. Empowerment is a critical point here. Let me make a leap here to Kurt's prior industry, the automotive industry or transportation. The analogy I'd like to make is that most financial services today are like mass transit. They're built for the 80 to 90% use case. They're built for where most people like to go. But this misses the 10 to 20% or usually more not covered by mass transit routes. It also misses the last fractional mile to home. It misses the fact that people want to go at different times, and sometimes they want to carry large boxes along. Now we hear about self-driving cars, but, but in finance, I'm not even sure we've hit the automobile revolution yet. I asked Kurt about the automotive industry and what fintech could learn from it. He talked about self-driving finance, which was cool to hear from someone who has knowledge of self-driving cars and fintech. There's all these pervasive theses that exist currently around self-driving finance or, you know, entirely new ways of, of doing lending that if you think about it, they require an entirely new set of infrastructure to actually enable, right? I think the self-driving finance is a really good example, right? Like as of right now, a lot of it is once the money actually hits someone's account, then you can say, hey, budget it this way or send money here so that you can optimize your savings yield or whatever it might be and kind of like allocate a portfolio that way. But you're dependent upon that money actually landing in the account. And for a lot of people, you know, that money is not consistent, is not recurring, right? But being able to actually go into one step above into the payroll layer, you can actually do a lot of really interesting things that are entirely kind of new to what exists currently. This shows so much creativity, vision, and drive. It isn't surprising that it came from someone who loves to start companies. I found Kurt to be a kindred spirit. Entrepreneurship can be addictive, and Kurt was very inspired by the experience of his parents. His dad immigrated to this country, and despite being a doctor that made a good living, all the information from his former country didn't cross borders with him. He found that he was paying a much higher rate for a mortgage and wasn't extended the same amount as his peers. As a second-generation American myself, I related to this story. Wow, but his first companies weren't in fintech. 
Do you think being a startup in this space is the same? There are definitely differences. I do think there are a number of really interesting, unique attributes to the world of fintech that are maybe not as uh, relevant for consumer tech, for example. And I think one of those is that you're building in a regulated space. And in fact, the regulations oftentimes are the drivers of markets or at least of the behaviors in the market, right? And so I think learning to build uh, with that in mind has certainly been a really interesting experience um, and you know, working closely with regulators and governing bodies to make sure that we are not only staying compliant, but really helping them figure out what the next phase of policy looks like. Because I think we're at the cusp of a lot of really, really interesting innovations. And what I've seen, at least from our partners in the governing or in the government rather, is that they are very excited about all the different prospects of the new technology. And it's really make sure that they understand what all the potential risks are so that we can work together to, to build the best possible future for everyone. But his insight into the hopes and passions of regulators is great. Seeing their own enthusiasm to make changes that benefit the whole system isn't always the way that we talk about regulation. Yeah, his perspective is exactly where I think entrepreneurs and the entire fintech community needs to be. But that is definitely another episode. That's it for this episode of The Money Pot. We'd like to thank Kurt Lin, CEO and co-founder of Pinwheel. We would also like to thank our producer, the indomitable Roland Bodenham. We are very excited about seeing you live in Amsterdam on September 21st through the 23rd and in Vegas from October 24th through the 27th. Tickets to both shows are available now at money2020.com. And if you like The Money Pot, please leave us a review on iTunes to help others find the show. This podcast will also be live in Vegas. So tell us now how much you want to be a part of it by sending ideas to podcast at money2020.com. And thank you for listening. This is Essential. 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 This is Essential Audio.